Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. A couple of notes before we get to this week's episode. Guys, keep reaching out to us via our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Contact Us tab. We love the feedback, but not only that, you guys are giving us some great suggestions for future guests. You're also providing stories yourselves. A lot of you have volunteered and said, hey, I'd love to tell my story, and we love to do that. So if you guys have a story to tell as a veteran or you know somebody who does, please reach out to us on our website, hazardground.com. Make sure you follow us on all the social media sites as well, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at hazardground, at hazardgroundpodcast. You guys can reach out to us that way as well. And of course, leave a rating and a review on iTunes that helps grow the show and grow the Hazard Ground audience. If you'd like to make an impact in veterans' lives, you can do so very simply. Just go to our website, hazardground.com, and then scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and click on that Amazon button. That's how you have to do all your Amazon shopping from here on out. Anything you need from Amazon, go to hazardground.com first, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll take you right to amazon.com, do all your normal shopping. We get a percentage of what you spend, and then we donate that back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. And one final note. I came across a stat last week that just absolutely shook me. I mean, it jarred my mind. Here's some perspective for you. Since 2008, the number of veterans that have committed suicide has now surpassed the number of Americans killed during the entire Vietnam War. That is an insurmountable number of veterans who are taking their own lives. So if you are a veteran and you need to talk to someone... The Military and Veterans Crisis Line is 800-237-8255, or just send a text to 838-255. Again, 800-273-8255, or just send a text to 838-255. If you know somebody who's in trouble, call those same numbers. Text those same numbers. Take the steps to help save a veteran's life. Over and over, we've had so many guests on this show talk about the steps that they took so they didn't end up down the road of suicide. We've talked to vets who have tried to commit suicide, and thankfully, they were not successful, and they're still here. Whatever you need to do, please take the steps to get the help you need. You're not alone. You shouldn't be ashamed. A lot of us are going through the same things that you are going through. And the more veterans we lose to suicide, the weaker we are as a nation, the weaker we are as a military, and the weaker we are as people. So please, please, if you know somebody is struggling or you yourself are struggling, the Military and Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255 or text 838-255. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a former U.S. Army Staff Sergeant who is a member of the Special Forces. He's a combat veteran of Vietnam. After spending three and a half total years in the military, he spent 19 months in country in Vietnam conducting covert reconnaissance missions for what was called MACV SOG, which stands for Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. It was a recon element. It was top secret. He is John Stryker Meyer joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. John, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Okay, Uh, we go back to Vietnam, and it's interesting because what you did in Vietnam, we haven't been able to talk to a lot of Special Forces guys from Vietnam, because at that time, really, Special Forces was still relatively new. It was born in the 50s and used sparingly. But by the time Vietnam rolled around, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I get the sense that, that this wasn't exactly a, a high-level career field that many people chose. So I'm curious to know your start in the military and how you ended up in Special Forces. Well, Special Forces was started in 1952, but it was, it was relatively, relatively quiet because that was when the uh, secret war in uh, Europe was going on. And they formed Special Forces, the 10th Special Forces Group deployed, and the first Green Berets went to Germany in the uh, end of 52. And they had the Cold War that went on for years, and, uh, and we just had a book that just came out on that secret war. So from there, for Vietnam, in my case, I graduated from high school in 64. It took me two years to plunk out of college. I flunked out in the summer of 66. 
Um, the Vietnam War was in full flare. And I read the book, The Green Berkies, because I knew I was going to get drafted. Read the book and said, okay, if I'm gone, I want to go with these guys if I can get through the training. So enlisted, went through the training, basic AIT, jump school, special forces training group, got recycled once for Camo, graduated in December, and then we, we sent us down for some TDY training at Fort Gordon, had a month uh, R&R before going to Vietnam, Landed in Vietnam at the end of April. All right, hold on a second. But let me ask you, when you signed up, you weren't drafted, correct? You, I mean, this is a choice you made on your own. Oh, yeah, I enlisted because okay. that's the way you're insured of getting an opportunity to volunteer for Special Forces training. So when you w- went into the recruiter and said, I want to go to Special Forces, did they look at you crazy? Because, again, you know, as we just talked about, it, it wasn't prevalent. It wasn't like there was a, a, a ton. It's not prevalent the way it is today where, you know, there are commercials and movies and everything else. I mean, it's just, it was a whole different time back then. Well, yes, you're right. It's different. But there's also two other things that happened. The book had been out for over a year, The Green Berets. He had sold over 500,000 copies. And then uh, Barry Sadler came out with the Ballad of the Green Berets, a song that hit number one on the charts for about eight weeks back in 66. So that, there was some cultural awareness of it. And by that time, uh, some of the newspapers had begun doing some basic stories. The National Geographic had done a takeout on one of the Green Beret teams in Cambodia, where, I mean, in uh, South Vietnam, working with indigenous personnel. What was the training like? I mean, now we kind of have an idea of what assessment and selection is like for special forces and how they go through it. How much different was it back then? Uh, Quite different. There was no pre-qual, and uh, we had three phases. Um, Phase one training, then we had three phases. Phase one, which was uh, your basic Special Forces training, survival, a little hand-to-hand combat, uh, land navigation, and a course of force marches, uh, up at night harassing you a little. But just wanted to, they wanted to see how bad you wanted it. And then phase two was your MOS training. In my case, it was Camo, the Green Beret Medics. Their training went for a year, and their training was uh, they were the best medics in the, in the, in the world then and they are today, in my opinion. And so their training was a year where at Como, we had 12 weeks. I got recycled once because we were doing Morse code. And that was, uh, I just had a 10-year. I was just a slow learner. But it went, when we were done, you came together as an A-team. They gave us a field training exercise. We jumped at night in the rain at 800 feet. We had one broken back, several broken legs as a result of that uh, jump, and uh, that was the way it went. Let me ask you, did you feel at the time going the Special Forces route increased your chances of survivability in Vietnam? Absolutely. Why? Absolutely. Because when I, um, when I went through the uh, training you know, the advanced infantry training, they came up and they, they had recruiters. You know, there was this day, it was a rainy day, so you're in assembly. There was like 700 people at the assembly. And different recruiters come by, cooks, commo guys, medics. And then uh, they had this little, at the very end, the last person was a little bait rooster of a guy. He comes in as a green beret. He walked up to the stage, did a vertical leap to the stage, turned around and said, anybody interested in special forces? And that was all he said. He says, anybody here want to volunteer? So I jumped out of my seat going, I read the book. This is the time. I want it. So me and about five other guys stood up out of 700. I'm going, holy shit, do you guys realize you're going to Vietnam in a month? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get a little bit more training before I go because I need it. I'm a city slicker. <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah, that was the beginning. So there we, so this is at uh, Fort Gordon in the middle of advanced infantry training. 
they ran us through all the mental, physical tests. They had to prove you could swim and all that stuff. And, uh, and uh, faked them out. Got did, in. Did all the guys that raised their hand with you make it through as well? It's a good question. Because at the Special Forces Training Group, back then they had three or four different companies. I was in a company. A couple of guys that volunteered who went up with me on the bus, uh, they went to B Company. And uh, after training group, we all went separate ways. I never saw any of them again. Wow. Do you remember any of their yeah. names? One was Freddie Filoon from uh, Maine. Just a complete character. He would think he would get so drunk at night that he'd be down at the bar. He'd throw up on the bar. And then he would sit there playing with his puke. That's and, gross. Uh, people were like, what are you doing? <laughs> so he, big, he would get a big pile of his puke. And when he had a big crowd of people around him, he'd smash it and get, every, get everybody. That's why I remember Freddie Filoon from Maine. Wow. <laughs> and, and I assume that you've never seen his name on the wall, obviously. No, correct. Okay. Did not see it on the wall. So at least, you know, he, he survived to a, to a certain extent. So anyway, just curious, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes you remember those guys very well and they stay with you forever and you oh, stay yeah. in touch with them or sometimes it's just it's a, that two ships passing in the night sort of deal and you never talk to each other again. All right. Well, in, in, the case of, in the case of special forces training, when from training group, that was the, there were guys in common like Johnny McIntyre, um, you know, uh, Eldon Barswell, those kind of guys. Those people you remember, and we've had maintained friendships over the years because we met later at CNC. Gotcha. All right, so you finish all your your special forces qualification and everything at the end of 1967. By May of 68, you're in Vietnam. Uh, what are you told prior to leaving, um, and what is your mission set when you get there? Well, when we get there, uh, uh, during training group, near the end of our uh, MOS training, we had guys that had been in on two or three times. So we think the instructors got to know us a little. They said, hey, when you go to Vietnam, get into an A camp, do a traditional camp. So there's other missions out there. At the end of your in-country training, people are going to come to you and say, hey, we got projects. We need volunteers. They won't tell you what it is, but you can volunteer. Don't do it. Go to an A camp. So, of course, when we get to Vietnam and May, by the time we're done with the in-country training, Sure enough, at the end of it, the last day, a little guy comes out and goes, we're looking for volunteers. So my buddy Johnny McIntyre goes, for what, Sarge? Can't tell you. Either you're in or you're out. <laughs> so naturally, we, the movie was out. The Green Berets, the movie was out with John Wayne. So we volunteered right there. And what was, what did you, what was the volunteering ended up being? What did it mean? That meant that the next day we were on an airplane to Zang. And then a day or two later, we got a top-secret briefing for Mac Vissad, the, the secret war in Vietnam. And it was one of those moments in time that you just you never forget because you go into this room, all the windows are covered, and you sit down. And we've been going to classes now for 13, 14 months. So we all sit down, we pull out our pads, our pens, and the sergeant major comes out and put those away. And then he has a uh, spec four or somebody was handing out individual pieces of paper to us. He said, gentlemen, in front of you is a piece of paper. It's a document. If you are staying in this project, sign it. You're agreeing not to talk about this project for 20 years. If you do, you will be federally prosecuted and jailed for violating this agreement. Wow. Anybody who doesn't want to agree, you can leave now. Well, we all stayed. We all signed it. Did that freak you out, though? Oh, yeah. This is like, this is our invitation. Welcome to the secret war. But this is what you live for. You know, you go through all the training. You talk to all these people. You've seen the movies. You've seen all the World War II movies. And this is it. Now we knew you're in special forces and there's a special project. And this was it. Let me ask you, like, just kind of some military background for those of us who aren't that old. No disrespect, obviously, but... You know, no, no, no. we don't get those we, we don't we don't get those papers to sign now. Like you have a security clearance, and with the violation of that clearance comes federal prosecution. Is this essentially the same thing, or did you not have security clearances back then? No, we all had top secret clearances. Okay, so but then everybody what, had them. What was the reason uh, for the paper? Because any of that stuff would have been violating your security clearance, which would have been a federal crime anyway. It's the government. 
Well, as I know, Mark, they were, just, they were, you know, you had your top secret clearance, but they wanted it in writing that you understood. And I'll tell you how serious they were. Um, after my first book came out, my dad read it. And then he told me, he said, you know, I always wondered why they collected our trash. He said, there was this black guy. He would come by. He was a big black guy. He would come by. He'd take our trash. I got to the point where I recognized him. And my dad was working at the post office at the time. He said, I saw a guy at the post office. Well, at the post office in Trenton, New Jersey, was where the FBI was. Mm-hmm. So the fan belt inspectors sent this guy to come by the house and pick up our trash just to make sure that the letters I sent home had nothing in it that violated that document. Wow. Big Brother's so always watching, huh? Oh, yeah. Even in 1968, Mark. <laughs> That's crazy. I don't know why. Yes, this, just a quick anecdotal story that, uh, speaking of trash, has happened to us uh, in Iraq because I was uh, attached to the special forces in my first deployment. Um, yeah. A, a guy there, on a raid, on on a hit, they found a hand-sketched map of our compound, right? So whoever yeah. whoever they found a hand-sketched map of our compound, like literally almost perfect. Um, and then about a week or two after that um, – one of the SF guy's wife got a letter at home in Arabic. It was all written in Arabic. No. Yeah. And from then on out, it was straight up. Everybody start burning trash, burn everything with your address and any, any personal information. Cause they automatically felt like there was a guy on the inside who was feeding them. Yeah. There was, there was like a mole on oh, the yeah. inside who was feeding the information. And it's just, it, when you start talking, that story always pops up in my head. It was a big red, you know, red alert for everybody. You know, whatever mail you get from home, you burn everything. Don't, don't leave anything out in the open or anything, or don't just throw it in the trash. Cause there are people in the compound going through our trash and obviously, um, sending threats back, back home to the United States. Freaky stuff, man. Freaky. All right. So you get this top secret briefing. Um, when you get the mission set, in this briefing, are you, I mean, first of all, what is it? And are you like overwhelmed at the concept of it? Well, we're basically sitting there with our mouths open because this is it. You know, we, we heard about it. We knew there were other operations. We didn't know exactly what it was because nobody could talk about it. So, um, the, uh, Sergeant major, uh, who did the briefing, you know, he had a, um, uh, there was a, we couldn't tell what it was, but it was a large map. So he pulls the, uh, he pulls down the black blanket, and there it is. There's, there's Southeast Asia, Vietnam. There's just the country, the map. But in Laos and Cambodia, there's target designators. There's like 10 by 10 squares, which are for every target. In, in our case, it was more heavily focused on Laos. And, uh, and it says, welcome to the secret war. These are targets. We run them across the fence. And it went into talking briefly about what the missions were and uh, where we'd be assigned. And then from there, because they had hatchet for us. And, of course, there was also a need for combo. There's always a need for combo. And so uh, some of our guys were assigned to combo. And in my case, um, when I got off, off the helicopter at Vietnam, um, the... Uh, we got the helicopter, another recon team got on and was inserted into layoffs. It disappeared, never to be heard from again. And, uh, uh, spike team, Idaho, the team leader was, um, Glenn Lane. His assistant team leader was Robert Owen. And to this day, they are amongst the 1,587 American uh, personnel that are still listed as MIA in Southeast Asia. Wow. And so they had an instant opening in recon. And uh, uh, Robert J. Spider Parks, who I was in a company with, a training group, he had been on a team, had just got promoted to having another team. And uh, so he didn't go on that mission. So when that team disappeared, Spider became the uh, team leader, the 1-0 for Idaho, and I became his radio operator. And then we had to hire more distance troops and... Uh, then we began intense training for for over a month in country. And then we did some night ambushes and stuff like that in country just for training purposes. 
Take me through your first mission when you go out there, whether it's just a recon mission or it was an actual raid. Kind of give me the background and, and walk me through it mentally. Yeah, the, the very first mission we had was uh, the uh, we had to insert Air Force sensors along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And um, we had to take in sensors. We had an ex- expanded team. We took two extra Americans with us. And uh, the Air Force sensors had uh, a central unit that had coaxial cables running out of one, both two different sides. So um, we went into the Ashaw Valley, put in a sensor, had the central cent- center where we had to dig it, put it in, then bury the cable, the coaxial cable, both one north and one south along the trail. So we were on the ground three to four hours there. And it was the Ashaw Valley, which at that time was our worst target. It was the deadliest target of all. And uh, we just kept uh, waiting for the firefight to begin. But it never happened. And uh, so I had to, uh, we, we just continued to do our work, put it in, and then it went back and installed it without any firefights. Like, you know, Charlie fought, fought when he wanted to fight. So to that end, uh, as sort of the tip of the spear, when combat does happen, what's that like for you? Well, um, after that mission, we did another we did another wiretap, and then we put another uh, one of those sensors in. So um, we had those three missions under our belt. In October, uh, Spider Parks had became a Cubby rider. A Cubby is our Ford air control. So, uh, and Don Walker was the team leader. Our mission was to go in for a point recon, but a secondary mission was to, tr- was to try to find an American POW camp in Laos. We were on the ground for day and a half and two o'clock of, on day two, which was October the 7th, 1968. Uh, myself and Sal were the tail element and we saw two NVA. And uh, they were about 150 yards behind us. And they, were, they kept their arms at Port Arms. And it was weird seeing two NVA soldiers and not to engage them. So with that, I told Wolken, and we climbed up to the top of a, of a knoll, a smart, small knoll. About 2 o'clock, they hit us wave with wave attacks. They came out of the jungle. And was wave after wave of NBA came at us. I tried to make combo, couldn't make any combo. And we were in contact maybe for an hour and a half, two hours before we finally made contact. And that's how the, um, that first party operation went on. And the jungle was so close and so thick that you wouldn't see the people you were killing. It was so triple, it was triple canopy, Mark, where you had three layers of jungle that were rose 150 feet in the air. And we had this little knoll. So we had a six man recon team, three Americans, three South Vietnamese. And they came at us from a couple different directions. And again, they had to come up this hill. And fortunately, because the knoll that we were on was small enough, they could only mass so many bodies at one time. So uh, we were able to uh, to do that and get in there, and um, uh, and, and so that saved us just the sheer size of the hill. Does that make sense? No, yeah, it does. I, I mean, I'm I'm mentally picturing the whole thing as best I can. Obviously, never having been there, but. I'm I'm beginning to wonder, um, as you start going along on more of these missions and stuff like that happens where you're, you know, getting danger close to the enemy on a routine basis, um, do you feel more confident or more scared that something bad's going to happen as it goes along? (laughs) Well, those are things you don't think about. Yeah, you, you you know, because the the hardest part of the mission was just to have... um, um, you know, you're always trying to learn to improve what you're what you're doing on the ground. 
So we would always talk to the senior NCOs, men who had been out there. And that's, and that was where we learned. That was the most important uh, teaching element for us. And so we would continue to go in to see them and we learned from them. That we learned our lessons for things. And we constantly talked amongst each other, always trying to learn another tactic, another trick, or to see what the NBA were up to, the North Vietnamese Army. Because in 68, when we landed there, um, the NBA had forty to 50,000 troops in layoffs, plus they forced all the indigenous people to work with them. And our job was to go in and see what they were doing. I wonder, while you're in Laos and everything's going on in Vietnam, and you're hearing about all the U.S. soldiers that are in Marines and uh, you know, people that are being killed, do you feel like you're in a better spot, almost a safer spot in Laos than, than over in Vietnam itself? Uh, it was a different sort of conflict. You know, they had to worry about fighting when the enemy wanted, which is true with our case, but, you know, Mac B. Sog had the highest casualty rate of the war. Because it was top secret, nobody talked about it. Wow. The casualty rate exceeded 100%. And you might say, well, how did that happen? Because there were men like uh, Bob Howard, who got the Medal of Honor from a SOG mission in 1968. He was put in for 11 Purple Hearts, so he received only eight. And myself, I had a Purple Heart, and there are a couple others that have been put in for it, and, and the paperwork just disappeared. Um, so that was the way, you know, so between... Our guys in the secret war being killed or wounded or disappearing. I mean, today, as you and I talk, Mark, just from the secret war alone in Laos, there are 50 Green Berets, including Glenn Lane and Robert Owen, who are still listed as missing in action in Laos, plus 160 airmen. At least this is a process of 160 airmen, both Army, Marine Corps, and Air Force, who died supporting us in the secret missions. And people just forget how intense the the war was there. What happened to you guys on Thanksgiving of 1968? <laughs> uh, we had been temporarily assigned to um, FOB-6, which was in uh, further south Vietnam. That was our southernmost uh, launch site. And um, on that mission, there were three NVA divisions that were missing in action in Cambodia. So that's three divisions with 10,000 men each. And Saigon was really concerned. And the CIA, DIA, and whoever else had literally lost track of them. And our mission was to go find them. And um, we were up, I was up late that night with S3 and the CO looking at the latest intel reports, photographs, et cetera. And um, in the morning, uh, we went ahead and we launched, and we went into an area that we picked, and uh, we were just very fortunate. The recon guys had, had smiled on us, and uh, when we went into this target, um, we were on the ground, I forget how long, maybe half hour, an hour, we literally walked into a base camp, and there were there were pots on on open fires, smoldering fires, and uh, after the mission was done, we realized that we literally walked into a base camp. One NVA division had left; another NVA division was just coming in. So within a short period of time, they had heard the helicopters, and they were coming back to to get us. And it was a sight I'll never forget because in Cambodia, the vegetation was more open. You could see three to 500 yards away. And the um, um, soldiers, the NVA, were running at port arms into this base camp where we had been. And we called, you know, an emergency for emergency extraction. We went back towards the LZ, and they came at us, again, wave after wave, 
we were using Claymore mines with five-second fuses on them to hold them back as we got to the LZ. And, um, again, we didn't have time for a body count. But I know we killed a lot of them. And when we left on the helicopter that lifted off, some of the NVA were running out of the jungle. And it was a muddy, wet area that the helicopter landed in. And the NVA, like I said, they were running at port arms. So when these soldiers came out of the jungle, they would try to stop. And so you could see the mud from the bottom of their boots rising up into the air as they're trying to stop and trying to bring their AK-47 down to shoot at us. And we were shooting these guys, just blowing them back into the jungle as we extracted. And uh, that was Thanksgiving Day, 1968. Uh, you know, one of those missions you never forget. Are there any other missions in particular that stand out for you for any given reason, whether it's the, the loss of a fellow Green Beret or uh, something, you know, I, I guess notable happened? Well, I mean, because overall, and I'm sorry to cut you off. It's just I asked the question so open ended because you did so like these. You were on these missions almost every other day to a certain extent, correct? Well, yes, we we would constantly want to have teams on the ground. So when I got into FOB one in May of '68, we had 30 recon teams that were listed on the board. Idaho had been wiped out. And we had a couple other um, issues with other teams that were either personnel had been wounded. We had one recon team, Alabama, that had been um, everybody on the team was killed. They they killed and tortured the assistant team leader, and the one zero, the team leader, escaped. He did an E and E for three or four days, and he was able to uh, a helicopter was able to get across the fence and saw his panel and was able to pick him up and take him back. So this is May of 68. But he, by uh, end of November, Idaho was a, one of the few operational teams in camp. So when we came back from the FOB-6, we would get a target in the morning, and we would go out, and we had several days this afternoon, Mark, where we would go in the primary and get shot out secondary LZ, shot out, go into the alternate LZ, get shot out. And so Laos was so far away from our base, he had to turn around and go back. They were running low on fuel. They would reload, <coughs> re <-eat> lunch, <coughs> excuse me, and they would give us a new target. Do the same thing in the afternoon. We did this for three or four days. Finally, on the fourth day in the afternoon, we got inserted into a target. And we were just happy to be on the ground. So I uh, put the team out. We moved up this mountain. And normally we would go 10 minutes and stop 10 minutes to listen to the jungle because the sounds of the jungle could help you detect enemy movement. You just want to stay in touch with it. But on this day, I put the team on the ground and we went straight up this mountain. And we marched almost a forced march for over an hour. We came to a large trail. We crossed it, got across it, set up a wiretap, set up an ambush, and they didn't know we were there. And people were going up and down this trail. Now, this is a trail that from the air, you couldn't see anything. This is the Ho Chi Minh Trail. On the ground, the trail was so large, you could drive tanks down. Hmm. So on this mission... The people are going up and down the trail, enemy soldiers, casually walking. They don't know we're there. We're taking pictures. The wiretap is gone. So Covey comes back. Covey's our forward air controller. And I gave him the code, which was in one hour, have the helicopters at the LZ. We're going to have a live POW. Because we had designed um, ambushes with Claymore mines. So then the center, there was C4. The C4 was cut to a, to a width that would knock out an individual. And then the claymores on the other sides would kill everybody to the right and to the left of that. And then, of course, you had claymores in the back, 
and perimeter security, things like that. So I gave him the code, and Spider Parks was flying back that day, the Covey rider. He said, don't move. Do nothing. Don't breathe. I'm at 10,000 feet. I can't see your mountain. I don't even know where you are. And that short period of time, the weather had completely socked us in. So by that point, the successful mission took took another turn. And uh, then the enemy activity on the trail picked up. North of us, we could hear what sounded like tanks and trucks. Their engines began to start up. And a lot of the enemy activity picked up. So we ran the wiretap a little bit longer, pulled it down, left, and we moved until dark, and we came to a, a, a stream. We walked up the stream for an hour, at least an hour or so, and I had the guys go back and forth. We put down, by now you could hear the dogs. We put down mace and black pepper for the dogs because they had, uh, I don't know how many dogs. So we set up the perimeter. We finally went up the bank. I was facing the bank. Make a long story short, uh, after we had been there for, for five hours, two NVA soldiers were in the stream. They had a lantern. They walked past us. The lantern fuel ran out. So they came back down the stream. And when they went past us, my interpreter, Hep, coughed. Well, they stopped. And again, to make a long story short, one of them crawled up the bank towards me. And he would only crawl when the wind blew. And finally, he touched my boot. Now I'm sitting there with my feet spread and my car 15 pointed at him. And when he touched my boot, I could hear him catch his breath. But the, that soldier was really cool. He waited until the wind moved, moved the tree branches, and then he moved back. And he would only move when the wind blew. And then he went down to his buddy, and he and his buddy left. So first light, we were out of there, and we were in that target for another four days. And so, socked in. They couldn't get us out. So wait, you're telling me the enemy soldier touched your boot? That night, yes, sir. Why didn't you fire? Because had we fired, the enemy would have known where we are. At that point, the only people who knew where we were were those two NVA. And they had to get back to their soldiers to tell them where we were. So if I had shot, then everybody would have rallied. The enemy troops would have rallied around the noise of my shot. What about the possibility of hand-to-hand combat at that point to take out the enemy? Where it still would have been too noisy? Yes, because um, he was on the bank, and I'm sitting right at the top of the bank looking down. It's maybe 10, 15-foot steep bank. Okay. So there would have been all kinds of noise, and his buddy was still at the bottom of the stream there. Oh, so you, wouldn't, you might have been able to get one, but not both. Right. I mean, that's got to that's got to be a, a a Sawyer drawers kind of moment. Like, I mean, how do you know he doesn't okay. have a pistol just to take you out at that point in time? Roll the dice. That's a scary roll, there, John. Well, it was. I mean, it's one of those moments, you know. It's, <laughs> so in the morning, you know, after we had a couple early breaks, I I told the guys what had happened. They're all like, "Oh, you're kidding!" But they saw the they saw the soldiers go past. And when the lantern burned out, they heard them come down. Um, but they didn't know where he were until Hep coughed. And so um, the next morning, we moved literally all day up that mountain. We ran into some woodcutters, but uh, they didn't bother us. And then we were still socked in. We were socked in for another four days before he got extracted. Could you see his face? No. you could. That's one of those deals, Mark where you can move your hand in front of your face, you'll feel the wind from your hand, but you can't see your hand. It's just that dark. Okay. I just didn't know if you ever knew what he looked like. That's all. No, I, I was curious. Let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're there for four more days. I, I assume you, you don't come into any contact with anybody. No, minimal. Our people saw the woodcutters. We avoided them because they knew, we knew that they would tell the NBA. 
And uh, during that, one of the nights we were up there, we had one of those, another bizarre experience where we were on a mountain and a few mountains away, the side of the mountain lit up like Broadway. And we, so imagine you're in Laos, it's a primitive country. And it's just still like in the 19th century. And all of a sudden, this mountain lights up at the base. And what it was, it was a Russian airplane that we heard that came in to do a resupply. The whole side of the mountain, several mountains away, had was lighted with um, you know long, like over three or four football fields worth of light. And the Russians came in with an airborne resupply to that site. And it was one of those more bizarre experiences. We tried to get our air assets to shoot those suckers down, but we couldn't We couldn't get any uh, air assets out there in time. When your tour is starting to wind down, do you get a sense that everything you, you look back on, you know, everything that you went through was like, how did I survive this much? Oh, yeah. That was always in my mind. In fact, at, at, on Christmas Day, we had another one of those missions where we got inserted on uh, just north of the DMZ River in Laos. We got put into a target. The helicopter was supposed to take us to the top of the mountain, but for some reason, they put us on a little knoll that was had like a little ridge line that went to the mountain. So we get inserted. It was heavy elephant grass, and elephant grass can be anywhere from 4 to 12 to 15 feet high. It's thick elephant grass. But he put us in. We moved to the east, made contact. We had to go back to the knoll where we got it inserted. We had contact with the enemy, and uh, we threw some hand grenades, had a small firefight, and uh, eventually the hill to the south of us and to the west began to burn and the fire was coming up the mountain towards us and um, and that little knoll that we were on it was too steep on the west to go down and on the south side there was enemy soldiers there and then the, they could see the fire coming towards us so they ignited more fire so we had had a small firefight this fire is coming up the knoll at us. And we, this went on for a little while. And at one point, we're using black and those guys were putting down C4 to literally try to blow the fire back down the mountain. At the last minute, the uh, Captain Tuong with the South Vietnamese Air Force with a King B came in, came down the side of the mountain, and his prop wars held back the flames long enough for us to get on the H-34 Sikorsky. And when he lifted off, the whole hilltop that we had been on became engulfed in flames. That was Christmas. And yes, that was one of those missions. And after that mission, in answer to your question, um, this is 68, I'm 22. I don't know if I'm going to see 23. And my birthday was January the 19th. But you just can't let it overwhelm you. You know, you think about it, but then you just move on with the mission. So I ran recon all the way through to the end of my first tour of duty. And uh, we even had prepped for a mission to go up to northern Laos for another special mission that got canceled the last minute. Went home, was in tent group for five months, and came back to my old recon team in October of uh, 1969. When you come back in 1969, um, what's different about you know Laos, Vietnam, the whole thing from when you were there the first time? The NVA had improved their tactics. They had wiped out a couple more teams. I landed at the end of October, November 3rd. Uh, RT Maryland was wiped out. We lost the whole team there. On November the 10th or the 11th, another recon team was wiped out. So it's just like the first time. When I landed in Vietnam, the first time we had teams wiped out. I came back, the teams were wiped out. The NVA were more efficient. They had uh, sappers who were trained to track our teams. And we were told that the sappers would wear only loincloths and their weapons so that they could move with great stealth 
and um, they killed a couple of our team members where they would hit a team and they just killed all the Americans and they left the indigenous troops alive for psyops. And that's how sophisticated they were with their tactics. That's like more advanced than what we fought against in Iraq and Afghanistan. Like that level of stealth. Sure. They were good. And, uh, you know, you had the Russians training them. Well, that's true. Baptists were training them. The Chinese were there. And, um, you know, we had men that saw the Russians. And, in fact, one of, when I was home at 10th Group in between my tours in Vietnam, Lynn Black and our team uh, had Kaho with a Cuban who was there. And they had what just just bizarre, but that's the kind of support they had. You know, the communist nations were supporting uh, North Vietnam. Of course, the our hands were tied as the war, the conduct of the war went on. John, how does your second tour of duty end? <laughs> well, um, it ended, I was on a mission and we had a, um, we had a, a commanding officer who was a West Point graduate and he was busy building up, getting as many uh, medals for himself as he could. Um, and he forced us to carry an encryption device, which was the same size as a 25 radio. And he forced us to carry it. I had told him we had a four man team and our target was in the Ashaw Valley. And I told him I didn't want to carry it. But I said, I'll carry it, but if it doesn't work, I'll destroy it in the field. So needless to say, we get inserted. We were moving, we had a good insert and we made light contact. I asked for a tactical abstraction. Now, he, this colonel was flying in a helicopter about five clicks to the uh, east of us. I could hear his helicopter. And when I requested the extraction, he said, request denied. Break contact, continue mission. So the encryption device didn't work. So I destroyed it. And uh, we had light contact with the enemy. I was doing, uh, we did some gun runs with the A-1 Sky Raiders. And uh, this time they pulled us out. And when I went back to base, he said, where's your encryption device? I said, remember our discussion? I said, if it didn't work, I told you I'd destroy it. It didn't work, I destroyed it. He said, oh, no, we never said that. So he, so he said, I'm going to write you up. And, uh, in fact, I want you out of base, out of this camp. You have to leave first thing in the morning. And uh, he thought that I had a year enlistment left. Whereas when I extended to go back to Vietnam, I extended my ETS. And I only had two weeks in service left. So he didn't realize that. So I told him he could go fuck himself. And uh, I left camp in the morning. We had a big party that night with my Vietnamese team. And uh, we were up late at night. And... Uh, in the morning, I left and went down to the train for two weeks of guard duty, came home, got out. Would you do the same thing again if you had to do it over? Absolutely. Why? I mean, you know you know how it is with the people you serve with? Sure. The, those men, well, in your case, maybe men and women, those are people that I've judged everybody else I've met against them. I measured against them because they're just outstanding men, fearless men. And, uh, you know, that uh, esprit de corps, there's nothing like it. And the camaraderie we shared and the wells of mission, and we couldn't talk about it, you know. And uh, it was just uh, an amazing life experience, and I've been a better man for it ever since. Do you wish you were able to stay in longer? Oh, yeah. But 1970, by now, um, the Vietnamization process was, was going on, which was the drawdown of American personnel in Vietnam. At the peak, we had 544,000 Americans in Vietnam. And uh, um, by 1970, the, the drawdown was beginning. And it was a great concern to the special forces people because 
we all worked with indigenous people, the South Vietnamese. In my case, my whole team was South Vietnamese. They're outstanding, just fearless men, great soldiers. Um, we had Nungs, uh, Montagnards, Brew, Cambodian mercenaries that uh, different teams would work with. And so our experience was of great concern for what was going to happen to the people that we worked with, our indigenous troops. You could see it coming. And they were doing the reductions in force. So when I got out, I just couldn't imagine staying in the Army to go through what turned out to be 10 years of hell for special forces. They reduced special forces, cut it back. A lot of good men were forced out over time. And it was just a very sad, very sad experience overall. John, how come we don't know more about what special forces did in Vietnam? I mean, there have been hundreds of books written, there have been dozens of documentaries, and yet nobody really knows about what the special operations community did in Vietnam. Why do you think that is? Well, in our case, first of all, we're a quiet professional. Our, our pride is self-sustained. We pride ourselves in a good mission is the one you never hear about. So we would go out, do the mission, and come back, and everything was so top secret. We, we didn't even talk to each other. The Frenchmen did a mission where they blew up a whole fuel, a fuel dump. And uh, uh, two months later, another team did it, and they did it a different way. And they almost had casualties, but they never talked to each other. And so because of this, whole separation, the top secret levels of communication. And you did a mission. You didn't talk to anybody, but S3. We didn't come back and say, well, yesterday I was in target S4 or Echo 5, and this is what we did. We only talked in general terms. And so that whole top secret ops operational secret kept intact. People didn't talk about it. And a lot of the guys that are in the A camps, they did tremendous work there with the indigenous people. But again, you know, some books finally came out. Uh, War Story came out by Jim Morris in 79. And then Dave Mauer did a book called The Dying Place. And now more guys are writing. And John Plaster did a few books on SOG. And others have done books now. They're beginning to come out. But because we signed documents, we couldn't even talk about it. So when you see today um, that you got uh, special operators, uh, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, even Delta guys um, who technically you know don't even exist on paper according to the to the government, right. um, they're writing books. You know, they're they're even under pen names. You know, they're, they're writing memoirs or doing TV hits and everything else. Does it bother you? <laughs> well. It- it bothers me in, in the sense that some some books tell too much, and when when that OPSEC is uh, violated, that bothers me. But on the other hand, I'm torn. Don't forget, I used to be a reporter and an editor at a newspaper, so I have a very dichotomous personality. On one side of my personality, or maybe it's even schizophrenic, on one side, I'm a reporter-writer. I want everything out in the public. On the other side, I'm a Green Beret who's trying to be a quiet professional. I take individual pride in running a mission and sit, come back, sit down, shut the hell up, and don't talk about it. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, listen, I, I understand it as well. I, in my civilian job, I work in media, so I, I, I get both sides <laughs> of it. I mean, there's, there's a part of me that looks at it and goes, well, we should know about how Osama bin Laden was killed. Like, that's... That's valuable information to the people um, to, to understand um, the capabilities of, of what we have and, and what we do. Um, do I think it's more valuable to people inside Washington than it is necessarily to the average citizen? Sure, but I understand why those two can be one and the same. I mean, you know, elected officials are citizens, so uh, you can't distinguish between the two. But in the same respect, I do wish there was a little more desire for keeping certain things private. Uh, not everything is on, you know, need to know basis. Not everything is out there, should be out there for the public. How we operate and, and um, you know, how we go about recruiting people and how we go about uh, doing a whole bunch of different things, uh, I, I think, can be saved for 
just for the internal people, folks within the military. Absolutely. And then on the other hand, think about the lack of uh, appreciation for our history and how there is a the classic example. In 1970, we had a Green Beret hatchet force, 16 Green Berets, 120 indigenous troops that went into Laos to relieve the CIA operation, to take pressure off the CIA. It was a successful mission for four days. They had a major intel coup. They helped save the CIA on that mission, and um, they inflicted great casualties on the NBA. The Green Beret medic received the Medal of Honor from Donald Trump on October 23rd, 2017 from that mission. And there were 32 Purple Hearts handed out to the Green Berets on that mission. So this is 1970 where in Laos, that Green Beret team worked with Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, aviation. Now fast forward 10 years to the debacle in the desert when the Marine aircraft couldn't talk to the Air Force. And because of that, we had that tragedy in the desert. There's no historical retention of how to run operations. That's a classic example of not learning lessons or learning from lessons learned. Does that make sense? Yeah, the debacle you're talking about in the desert is the uh, the Iran hostage crisis rescue that failed, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. I just for the audience, I wanted to make sure they knew what you were referring to. Which, a shameless plug here, um, Colonel Roland Guidry, who was part of JSOC, the establishment of JSOC, was a previous guest on the Hazard Ground, and he was part of that whole operation initially, um, and and the failure of it, uh, which helped formulate and create, you know, Joint Special Operations Command. So um, there's there's a little bit of history for everybody involved there. Um, To to that end, you, you know, when we look back on history, and as you look forward, I mean. Have you been back to Vietnam? Do you want to go back? How many, how many times have you guys gotten together with all the uh, SOG guys that you that you were with? Okay, well, first, I haven't been back. Two, I don't desire to go back because I can't afford it. <laughs> I'm just a struggling journal, journalist. But three, we have the Special Operations Association. We have an annual reunion in lost wages. So we're going to have our 43rd or 44th reunion the week of October 21st at the Orleans Hotel. And uh, if you're if you're within a thousand miles, you're welcome to come and be my guest. Oh, absolutely! Hey, listen, anytime you get to go out to Vegas, I'll uh, I'll absolutely jump on top <laughs> of it. That's 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 always a great invite. But um, and you were the you were the president of the uh, I'm sorry, not the president. You you are now a 20 year member of the Special Operations Association, correct? I'm a life member, yes, sir. Yeah. So, well, I mean. I don't know how you kind of look back on all this and when you, when you do, I mean, is it all a positive experience for you? I mean, is there anything about it that, that you'd like to change? Well, well, of course I wish that we had conducted the war as we did in world war two, which is to go out to win. We could have done it. We, we had the tactics from world war two where the Marines and the army paid a severe price, but they, when they wanted to take an objects objection, they could take it. And um, that always bothered me. Our, having our hands tied in a war bothered me. But the men that I met there, South Vietnamese, the helicopter pilots, the South Vietnamese helicopter pilots, have saved our lives time at the time. Fond memories. Appreciate that. And I always focus on the positive. And uh, that's why we have our reunion. We've lost a lot of men this past year. Um, and so our ranks are thinning. But it was... Um, we hear all this talk today about socialism. The young people don't understand. They haven't seen socialism and communism when they have to confront that evil face on like we did. Because the communist way is do it our way or die. And these young snowflakes today don't understand the reality of socialism. And nowhere has it been a success. I don't care what Bernie Sanders or anybody else says. Interesting. I mean, you know, there is a a sense of um, combat is a great equalizer, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what your (laughs) political faith is or your political affiliation is. Um, You know, I don't think any of the VC ever thought of themselves as socialists. They were fighting for a cause, 
right? And to that Absolutely. end, whether you were a Republican or Democrat, you were in the opposite uniform, so it was it didn't matter to them, right? Well, John, listen, it's an amazing story. The things that you did and accomplished were absolutely uh, some of the most crazy stories we've had here on the podcast. And certainly thank you for your honesty and candor. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly thank you for everything you're continuing to do for veterans. And Well, thank you for your years of service. And thank you for getting the stories out to the public because uh, every veteran has a story that deserves to be heard for serving our country. Thank you for that. John Stryker-Meyer, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Airborne, brother. Till next time. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.